0: Welcome to the LSE events podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everybody.
1: Um, welcome to LSE for, 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 for today's, um, well, this evening's hybrid event, uh, which, which is forming part of the LSE Festival. Uh, this is one of the first talks. It, the festival is running, uh, is taking place from uh, today, Monday the 12th, to Saturday 17th of June uh, and the theme of this year's festival is People and Change. <clears throat> so there's plenty of events going on, uh, you signed up to this one, you may have signed up to others, uh, there's plenty of events uh, talking about how change affects people and how people may affect change. Uh, so uh, my name is Stephen Machin. I'm Professor of Economics here at the LSE and I'm Director of the Centre for Economic Performance. Um, so I, li- I, li- I like the idea about exploring how change affects people, and how people affect change. Because one of the key things in economics is about uh, the direction of causality, and this has the causality running in both ways, and so we'll talk about that as we go through. it. Anyway, I'm very pleased to welcome this evening's speakers uh, to both the audience we have here, and we have an online audience um, as well. Uh, So the speakers are to the left of me, and actually are seated in the order in which uh, they're going to speak so let, let me briefly introduce um, each of them. Uh, so Minoush Shafiq is President and Vice-Chancellor of the London School of Economics here. Um, she was previously a senior leader in the Bank of England, uh, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank. Uh, she's an LSE alumna. Uh, her book, uh, which everybody should read, is uh, What We Owe Each Other, a New Social Contract, which is out relatively recently. Um, and I guess Minoush might be referring to uh, some of the material that's in there uh, when she speaks. Uh, One one further left is Richard Davis. Uh, Richard's a professor at Bristol University, and he's director of the Economics Observatory, uh, which some of you may know uh, is is an extremely valuable uh, resource uh, which makes economic research widely available to a a, a broad uh, range of potential uh, potential readers and users. Uh, He actually joined the Center for Economic Performance uh, in 2016, uh, some time ago, when he was chief of staff on the LSE Growth Commission, uh, which, to which I contributed along with um, uh, Tim Besley, Nick Stern, and Annalena. Uh, previously, he's been chair of the Council of Economic Advisors of the Treasury. Uh, he's an economist and speechwriter at Bank of England and economics editor to the Economist. Uh, third, and third to my left is uh, Zani Minton Beddoes, who is the editor-in-chief of the Economist. Uh, Previously, she's been a business affairs editor uh, responsible for newspapers coverage of business, finance, and science, and I think we'll talk quite a lot about um, economics in the the international sphere. Um, uh, Final speaker is Linda Yui, uh, who's an economist, writer, and broadcaster. She's a fellow in economics at St St. Edmund Hall, Oxford University, and a junk professor of economics uh, at London Business School. Uh, She's an associate fellow on of oh, the US and America's program at Chatham, at Chatham House uh, as well. So what are we going to talk about today? What, what well, to we, we, we're going to try and talk about um, about economists in that setting of, uh, of people in change and the role for economists to have an influence and for academic research uh, and to be considered as well. Um, and of course, this is highly relevant given um, the moves we've seen uh, Uh, in in, in the recent past. Uh, So issues that we might be exploring in that context will be the consequences of COVID-19, of Brexit, of the big surge in inflation that we've seen uh, more recently and which seems to be continuing, Um, the energy crisis, uh, geopolitical tensions, which have actually pitched the UK economy, uh, some aspects of the UK economy, into turmoil. Uh, We've we've experienced uh, now years of economic stagnation, uh, both in terms of uh, productivity performance of the economy and in terms of workers' wages, uh, which have stalled and actually been falling in real terms um, more recently. Um, And, you know, many, many people in the UK, uh, which I think traditionally people have thought was one of the world's richest countries, but maybe that's not quite so true anymore, um, feel and are actually poorer. Uh, So I think our speakers are going to share stories of what's possible. Uh, what for economists to do, what the pitfalls might be, and to try and demonstrate in some ways how economists and policymakers have changed our lives. Hopefully, with the aims of creating a safer, happier, and fairer society. Um, so that's a kind of overview about, about where we're going. Just a couple of uh, practicalities. Uh, for tw- if, there's, if there's any Twitter users in the audience, um, the hashtag for today's uh, uh, event is uh, hash... And then in capitals, uh, LSE, LSEF, and then in, in lowercase, estival.
0: Okay?
1: I, I, I don't know how well I've communicated that. <laughs> <laughs> as a, I don't know how good my communications as an economist on that word, but we, we, we can maybe revisit that a bit later. Uh, can people please, uh, myself included, because I haven't done it yet, can people please um, put their phones on silence um, so as not to dis- disrupt the event? So the event's going to be recorded, hopefully... Hopefully, surely it will be made, made available as a podcast. Oh, subject <laughs> to no technical difficulties actually <laughs> taking place. So what we're going to do is we, we, we're, gonna, um, we're going to we're going to have each. We're going to in turn from my left to my to, to, to my left and right. There's nobody my, To my left. Is going further left? <laughs> from, from the, we're going to go across the four, four speakers. Who we're going to speak for about five or ten minutes each, and then we'll open up to a. Uh, uh, I am going to give a few general questions for, uh, for each of the speakers will respond to and then we can open up for a question and answer session uh, where we can take questions from the audience and from, uh, from Zoom uh, for, the, for the people who are logged on on, on, on Zoom. Um, so we can come back to the, questioning, question the Q&A format uh, when we get there. Um, and so to, let, let, me, let me first hand over um, to Minouche who's going to speak for five or ten minutes.
0: Okay, thank you Steve, and uh, welcome everyone, lovely to see you all here. So when I was thinking about these remarks, I was sort of torn um, as to how to start it, but I thought I'd start with a sort of variation on the quote from the famous Monty Python skit Life of Brian, which is, what have economists ever done for me? And I think it's fair to say that the economics profession as a discipline has exercised huge influence over our lives over the course of the 20th century, where economists have influenced policy in many ways. And those ideas that have changed policy have varied over time, from the kind of mercantilism that prevailed in the 19th and 20th century, to the greater role of the state that was argued for by many economists after the World Wars, to the kind of laissez-faire revolution that was partly spearheaded by economists like Frederick Hyatt here from the LSE and Milton Friedman at Chicago and led politically by Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, followed by the Third Way, which was also invented here at the LSE, uh, which tried to balance market liberalism with social progressivism. And many defunct and not-so-defunct economists played a critical role in all of those shifts in economic thinking, But I think it's fair to say that through all those changes in thinking, economics did massively improve the quality of our lives. So the answer to the Monty Python question is pretty similar to the answer that we gave to what the Romans ever did for us, which is medicine, irrigation, health, roads, cheese and wine, education, and the circus maximus which you might today call social media or Netflix. Um, (laughs) We live longer. We're healthier. We're wealthier. We're more equal than our forebears. Economic policy wasn't perfect and made lots of mistakes through those times, but it's hard to argue that the world is not a better place as a result of the application of economic thinking to the policy world over the last century. Another great LSE thinker, Lionel Robbins, after whom the library is named, defined economics as a science that studies human behavior as a relationship between ends and scarce means that have alternative uses. And the job of economics is to figure out how to achieve those ends with the scarce means that we have. And that is the main contribution, I think, of the discipline, is it provides a set of tools for doing just that, for evaluating the world as it is and f- figuring out the best way to achieve the world that we want it to be. Now, deciding what world we want to be is actually not the job of economics. That is the job of politics and culture and values. But what <laughs> economics is really good at is once you've figured out what world you want, what's the best way of getting that? And so economic thinking and changes in economic thinking often reflect changes in our politics, and the two are inevitably intertwined. So what next, looking forward? I do feel that we're at a moment where the tectonic plates are shifting beneath our feet. Politics is changing and requires a new economic thinking to support it. Why do I say that? Well, in the wake of things like the financial crisis, the declining productivity that Steve referred to, the pandemic, the new geopolitics, aging, climate change, all of those point to a need to rethink a lot of our economic policies. What are the new issues that economics needs to take into account to improve our lives? Well, let me start with a few ideas that I think apply globally, which I'm sure Zanny and Linda will expand upon, and then turn to the UK, where I think Richard will also have much to add. I would argue that economists understand economic growth pretty well. You can, you know, There are lots of things you can debate, but at the, at the highest level, we know that fundamental policies around Investments in education, in infrastructure, and in research and innovation are pretty key. But we know far less about how to embed sustainability and resilience in our models. And we need to think much more about how do labor markets and social safety nets work in societies that are aging very rapidly and with very low and declining birth rates. I would argue also that we've done economists have done a pretty good job of improving efficiency but less good a job in addressing distribution of income and wealth. And all of this has contributed to a world of political polarization and declining social cohesion and life satisfaction in many countries. And so the question is, how can, what can economists do to continue to improve our lives even more going forward? And I would start with growth and sustainability. I'm not going to rehearse the arguments about climate change. I'm going to assume everyone accepts the science and knows the issues. And economists have long argued that the solution to climate change is to have a carbon price. Uh, And that, in fact, if it did happen, would go very far to addressing many issues around climate change. But, of course, progress is very, very slow. The number of countries that have a seriously high carbon price is minuscule. Uh, And progress is slow because taxes are never popular, and distributional consequences of carbon taxes are significant. Remember what happened in France when the gilets Jaunes protested the imposition of diesel taxes and carbon taxes. However, uh, a few countries have implemented carbon taxes, and new approaches like the fee and dividend policies in the U.S. or the so-called carbon check that's been used in France and Canada are beginning to show how we can change the incentives around carbon use while still protecting the incomes of the poor. So changing our tax system uh, to better account for the environment is a first step and an important area that economists need to do more work on. But we also need massive investment over this decade, especially in energy systems, transport, and the way our cities are organized, as well as the way agriculture operates. And those investments need to be supported by research and development that delivers the kinds of innovations that can make our economies more sustainable. As my colleague Nick Stern often says, this is the growth story of the 21st century and economists need to do a better job of delineating what that growth story looks like. Now, While I'm on the unpopular subject of raising taxes, um, (laughs) I I have to just have a footnote that that speaks to the challenge of wealth and inequality. Two-thirds of global wealth is held in the form of property which is undertaxed in almost every country in the world. And asset owners, especially property owners, have done very well in the recent decade of low interest rates and quantitative easing. So I think one of the other areas that economists need to do, do a lot more thinking about is how to address growing wealth inequality around the world by thinking about how to tax property and other assets more effectively. And that, of course, could generate significant scope for public investment that would then provide incentives for private investment to address sustainability. Now let me turn to quickly to some of the other challenges, aging, inequality, declining productivity. I've argued elsewhere in that book that Steve referred to that in order to sustain support for markets and economic liberalism, we need a better social contract. And by this, I do not mean a better system of redistribution, or what my colleague Nick Barr at LSE calls the Robin Hood function of the state, taking from the rich and giving to the poor. What I mean instead is a better system of pre-distribution, the so-called piggy bank function of the state that invests in us and asks us to pay back when we earn more. And by that I mean more investment in early years, in worker reskilling, in labour markets that deliver both flexibility for employers but security for workers by having portable systems of benefits that move with workers in an era when people work much more flexibly, by recognising that we need more affordable childcare if women are going to be able to contribute to productivity, by linking retirement ages to life expectancy so that ageing economies uh, benefit from the labour of older workers for longer. And all of those things are part of a social contract that invests more in us, but asks more of all of us to contribute to society. Finally, I'll just say a couple of words about the UK, and I'll le- but I'll leave that for others. Many of the things I've just described apply in spades to the UK. Uh, we are in a period of political uncertainty, let's call it that, <laughs> with facing stagnant productivity, uh, the challenge of climate change, changing labour markets an aging society, and huge pressures on social services, particularly the National Health Service and social care. And there's also the added complexity of managing the consequences of Brexit. All of those point to the need for a new economic model and a new social contract in the UK. We at the LSC are doing some work along with the Resolution Foundation uh, to develop some of those new ideas, uh, which we're calling the Economy 2030 Commission, which I'm the co-chair of. And We're doing both extensive research as economists, but also doing a little bit of the politics by having a two-year national consultation based on public involvement and public engagement across the country on what a new economic model for the UK might look like. If you want more details, have a look at the website of the Economy 2030 Commission. But I think it's a really good example of trying to bring economic thinking to current problems and to, once again, try and get economics to make our lives a little bit better.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. Um, So, obviously, some insight there into how economics can change people's lives. Um, Up to Richard.
2: Thank you. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for coming out uh, on this warm summer evening. I just want to mention four really concrete things where I think we can say that economists as separated from the economy working uh, on its own have made a real difference. And I think all four of them are things that would have affected all of you. The first one, actually looking around, maybe I'm wrong, I'm going to ask you to cast your mind back to the distant era of the 3G mobile phone. Remember those things? They were slightly bigger, the battery lasted a lot longer, and they made better phone calls. (laughs) We can talk to Apple about that. In anticipation of launching 3G, the UK government um, called up some economists to ask them what they should do. Previously, they'd sold the airwaves, the Spectrum, and that is a a good that is owned by all of us jointly. And they'd got, based on the 2G auction, around £40,000. What they did was a so-called beauty contest. They just called reputable firms in and said, look, how much do you think this thing's worth? They all chatted, and the end result was £40,000. So um, Paul uh, Klemperer and Ken Binmore advised the government, and in 2002 they ran an auction, and they raised £22 billion. Okay. They'd sold at 40000 and using auction theory to so setting up a process where people were properly competing, they raised $22 billion. It was about 2% of GDP that year. So what can economists do? Economists can create markets, and they can find prices where they don't exist. Second example so a wonderful thing known as the soft drinks industry levy, known to human mm. beings as the sugar tax. Uh, so the UK, like many countries, has an obesity problem. Uh, And when I was working at the Treasury, one of the things we developed there was a a, a tax uh, on sugary drinks. Now, we know, and Britain has an amazing history of this, we've taxed beards, because we didn't like beards at one point. We taxed (laughs) windows, and you will see around the country buildings that don't have windows. People will avoid taxes, they will change what they do. And so we introduced a tax, it's 24p per litre, if your drink is more than 8% sugar, Companies reformulated their drinks. They kept the taste and they took the sugar out. Those that couldn't raised their prices. People uh, drank less of these sugary drinks and the early evidence is that obesity fell. So economists can also shape prices. Another example I must mention, particularly with Steve on the panel and because colleagues here at the LSE have been so involved, is minimum wages. Minimum wage came out in 1998. This was very much evidence-based Previous work, particularly in in the U.S., people had been able to compare states that were next to one another and had done different things with their minimum wages, a so-called natural experiment, and this had soothed concerns that a minimum wage would um, result in sky-high unemployment. So economists became confident, those advising um, Tony Blair's government became really confident and they put it in place. The evidence has mounted, and lots of colleagues here at the, uh, at the LSE have, have worked on this, and it now has cross-party support. So I, I think that the minimum wage is here to stay in the UK, and it is set based on economic evidence. And it has had a really big impact, including in the past five years, where we've had a lot of economic uh, difficulties for a number of reasons, ...in that inequality, particularly at the low end uh, of the scale, has fallen. So again, economic evidence, economic research... ...leading to an economic policy, leading to change in people's lives. Last one is inflation. Stay with me uh, on this one. Without economists, inflation would be much worse. Again, being in in the LSE, I have to mention um, Bill Phillips... ...who came up with the relationship between unemployment and prices... Milton Friedman quickly took that on in in 1969 and said that expectations were going to be really important. The intuition there is if we all expect high prices, we'll ask for high wages, and that will then in turn lead to high prices. So expectations can be self-fulfilling. That, if you think it through, it took economists 20 years leads to certain policy proposals. You should have really good central bank communication and you should have an independent central bankers. And so by the early 1990s, these things were taken on. Again, that comes purely from economic research and it has ended up changing the way central banking operated. When I joined the Bank of England, there were two guys left, just two, who still wore the bowler hat. They were in their, were in their 60s. And, and the, the kind of thing that those people told you was that the old mantra was that you keep the press out of the bank, don't let journalists in, in other words, and keep the bank out of the press. It was a private thing. Contrast that now with all of the speeches, uh, the interviews and the things that central bankers have to do. Why is this important? Just a final observation. And it may seem a a strange thing to mention, given I said uh, at the start, to mention given that inflation has been so high. If you go to other parts of the world, and some of the most extreme parts of the world, as as I have done as an economist, you will find out why these things matter. So in Kinshasa, Kinshasa is the capital of the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo, it's a city of around 8 to 10 million people. It's incredibly dense. There is no electricity grid. So imagine the density we have here, and when it gets dark, it's pitch black. This is a city where the world's second largest river just goes by, it's there, uh, and there's no running water in the city. It is an economic catastrophe, of of which um, is vastly underreported. Within that city, the world's poorest, the poorest, poorest people do something for a job, which is called Koteka Ndambu Ndambu. That's in the Lingala. It means the breakup business. Each, Sunday, each weekend, they go to a wholesaler and they buy something. It could be water. It could be, very often for the very poorest, it's charcoal. They buy this and then they break it up into small amounts. And in a country with no infrastructure, I can tell you that the traffic is absolutely terrible. And so there's a thriving market selling things to people who are stuck in those traffic jams. Those people, the poorest people in the city that we should be most worried about as human beings, I argue, they fear and loathe inflation like no one I have ever met. And why is that? Well, put yourself in their position. Inflation is highly volatile there and highly unexpected. So you buy your big bag of charcoal on a Saturday or Sunday, you break it up into small amounts, and you have an expectation. What should my price be? You then go out to the market, which is a long way from the wholesale port, where the wholesale prices are set, and you sell your charcoal. And if you sell it at the wrong price, not only have you made less money, you've eroded the entire capital base that you have. So inflation, and particularly unexpected inflation, is not just a, a problem, it is truly evil. And that is something that we do not face in Western countries some of that's to do with good institutions, but a good chunk of it is also to do with modern central banking, which is based fundamentally on academic research. Great, great. thank you, Richard. Over to Zanny.
3: Thank you, <clears throat> and thank you all for coming and thank you for having me. Um, actually, where I was going to start follows on, I think, although it's, it's not quite Kinshasa from, from where Richard finished. I was thinking about the the title that you gave us, How Can Economists Change Our Lives? And I was thinking, when did I kind of first realise how much economics changes people's lives? And I hate to say it wasn't actually at undergraduate. Perhaps maybe because I wasn't at the LSE. Had I been at the LSE, it would have been different. Um, But it was when I was a graduate student, and I went uh, to Poland in 1990 uh, as part of a group of um, graduate students with... Jeffrey Sachs, and we worked in the Ministry of Finance, and it was, we were working for the first post-communist government in Poland, and it was just after that government had very bravely undergone what is now somewhat um, criticised as shock therapy of freeing prices, freeing the exchange rate, almost overnight. And I remember getting, uh, arriving in Warsaw, which um, is not the world's prettiest city, with apologies to anybody here from Warsaw, um, but it was a and I walked down the main, the main thoroughfare, and what was really striking was that on both sides of the road, the pavements were covered with people who had got essentially the sort of rugs, and it was all stuff that they'd bought. they had gone, driven to Berlin, they'd bought a bunch of goods in Berlin, they'd come back, and they'd all become traders. And there were bananas, there were oranges, there was underwear, there was all manner of things. And then I looked behind, and there was the state shop, And the state shop was just, as you imagine, a communist state shop to be. There were rows and rows of shelves with nothing in, and then there were rows and rows of shelves of, I remember it very vividly, a kind of disgusting-looking tinned fish. And the entire row was the same tinned fish. And it was just an incredibly visceral reaction I had that I thought, this is what happens when when prices work. This is what happens when you free up economies. You see incentives in action, you see the price mechanism, you see trading in action. By the same token during that stay which ended up being the better part of a year i also saw how huge swaths of polish industry were rendered bankrupt overnight the consequence of this incredible increase in efficiency was a huge distrib- distributional shakeup, and it was a it was a really powerful sense to me of of why what economists did mattered and it ended up me changing what i wanted to do and i went to the imf and it was you know and the rest is history but it it was very, very powerful, and I suddenly realised the power of this discipline that many of you are studying, um, and the power of what it can do. And just as you described in Kinshasa, and I think the the impact is more immediately visible in economies that are less functional, bizarrely. Um, but but this was 1990, and I was you know the beginning of my career coincided, I think, with a period of you know, what is now called the sort of free market economics era, where in country after country, that whole notion of freeing prices, getting the government out of businesses, out of ownership, privatisation, deregulation, the kind of era of free market economics was ascendant. And I think we got modern globalisation from that. Um, We also, I think, had over that era, something else you touched on which is the primacy of economics and economists as technocrats. So the idea of fighting inflation through independent central banks with technocrats, brackets, largely economists in them. The idea of having fiscal rules, taking things out of the realm of politicians, putting them into the realm of technocratic economists was viewed widely as a as leading to a better outcome. And I think broadly, you're right, Minutia, did lead to a more efficient outcome. But the consequence of all of that and I think there was actually, before I get to consequences, there was, a, there was a hubris in the discipline itself. I think there was a sense that economics invaded lots of other disciplines in the last generation and economic thinking became imperative if you wanted to succeed in political science. It became imperative if you wanted to succeed in sociology. There was a kind of economising of, of, uh, of all of our thinking and there was also a sort of perhaps a development of a bit of hubris of what all this could achieve and I think... I'm going to exaggerate this as journalists who want to do and simplify it, but I do think there was a sense that as country after country in the emerging world embraced to greater or lesser degree globalisation and free markets, there was a hope and an expectation that democratisation would come as a result of that too, that these two things would go hand in hand. And of course, as we now, now look from 2023, I think that hubris in many areas um, was exposed and the world has fallen short of those ideals. You know, the financial crisis was probably the first big shock, and, you know, when Queen Elizabeth came here and asked, why didn't you predict it of a bunch of economists? It was, I think, a very big shock to the discipline. Secondly, I think the backlash against globalisation is based on the very real um, realisation that just because our economics textbooks say that everybody can gain from trade because the gains are sufficient that you can redistribute and everybody is better off, we actually don't redistribute appropriately. And so not everybody is better off. And so there was a very real backlash to a lot of globalisation. Thirdly, I think the pandemic uh, made us realise that optimising for efficiency does mean, as you say, Manoush, that we did not optimize for resilience um, and that there's a cost there. Fourthly, um, the very dramatic return of geopolitics, um, epitomized, of course, by Russia's invasion of Ukraine and what that exposed in terms of Europe's reliance on the very efficient, cheap source of uh, gas that we had. And secondly, the realization that Globalisation had certainly helped the Chinese economy, but it hasn't led to economic liberalisation in any shape or form there. I think that, again, also um, caused people to question this primacy of economics. And finally, I think the fact that even though economists have talked about what the right tools are to cope with the biggest, arguably the biggest crisis of our time, which is that challenge of climate change, actually economic tools haven't been terribly effective because they are so far distant from where where the world needs to be, I think those things together have actually led in the past few years to a remarkable reversal of all of this. And I'm struck now when I talk to politicians, particularly, um, and pretty much anywhere in the world, the economists have, been, have gone from being the kind of center of the room to basically, you know, you're lucky if they're part of the conversation. Uh, it's the security people. It's national security. It's a focus on all the other elements that we need, not economic thinking that is prime. And and one powerful example is the shift in the US where, and Manoush will know this well too, the US administration under the Clinton administration, under the Obama administration, even under the George W. Bush administration was full of economists and economic thinking kind of shaped the way America built its policy. They are out of the window now. I and mean, there just is much, much less focus on economics. It's about national security, and national security frames and shapes everything. And the consequence of that is that wherever you go now, people talk about strategic autonomy. They talk about the massive role needed for the state. The, we need to have, you know industrial policy. America spends more on industrial policy now than France as a share of its economy. You know, the, the state is back, government is back. And that's not necessarily in every area a bad thing, but I think the absence of economists leads you to some outcomes. It means that you don't have to focus on trade-offs because the economists are the people in the room who say actually there's a trade-off between these various policy goals you have. And so just to give you an example, the American Inflation Reduction Act, a huge, huge act of industrial policy, is trying simultaneously to bring back jobs to America to provide national security uh, Concerns. So to boost America at the expense of China and to accelerate the green transition. And there are real trade-offs between those. If you really focus on greenery, you would import solar panels from Xinjiang. If you're focused on human rights, you don't want solar panels from Xinjiang. If you want to focus on, you know, making sure that American manufacturing workers are helped, you have a very protectionist policy, at least in the short term. That's not what you do if you want to have the cheapest energy transition. And because economists aren't really part of this discussion, or much less than they should be, there isn't enough focus, I think, on those trade-offs. And then finally, I think we will end up in a world where a lot of this, um, these policies are much more costly than they need to be. And I'd point to the climate, as, as you did, Minouche. We will, we will make progress on the climate transition through a bunch of subsidies. We will make progress on the climate transition with the things we've got now, but we will do it in a much, 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 much costlier way than if we had a carbon tax. Um, there's no doubt that it would be more efficient to include and have a carbon tax as a much bigger part of our toolkit. And so I'm, I've gone from, you know, for most of my career, the economists have been perhaps hubristic, and I would, you know, not that I'm a, I'm a journalist, not an economist, but I'm, I'm kind of part, quasi part of the tribe. I blame, I think we, we deserve quite a lot of blame for that hubris. But now I think there is a real risk that, Things have shifted too far, and economists are not being listened to enough.
1: Great, great thanks. I, I suspect we'll come back to the uh, fact that the days of hyper and the onset of deglobalization have come back into play as, as, we, as, we, as, we, as the event progresses. But let's go next to Linda.
4: Thank you. Asham, um, um, I actually think I've, what I'm going to say follows on uh, pretty well from what Danny just said. Um because I'm going to take you through a little bit more history. Um, and um, I've written two economic history books. Um, one is The Great Economist. The latest one is The Great Crashes. You'll be unsurprised to hear I'm going to try to draw some positive lessons from The Great Economist, maybe a few less from The Great Crashes. However, that being said, I actually think um, there's going to be three points, turning points in history that I want to lead you through from the last 200 years. And the third one actually is rooted in the recent financial crises um, that we've had and the role that economists um, played in it specifically to create um, an economic consensus um, at previous points in history and then my hope is we will be at a turning point where economists can play a positive role in doing so again. But just very firstly um, sometimes I think economics has a communications challenge and I was thinking about the best way to explain it and I remembered this quote from the former US Congressman Dick Armey of Texas he said economics is the Uh, science that tells you things you've known your whole life but in a language that you can't understand. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm gonna take you now back to um, 1846 as I say there's gonna be two turning points in history. So throughout, um, throughout modern economic history there have been periods in which the economic consensus breaks down and then reforms again. And that's where people and change come really to the forefront. And you know, foreshadowing what I'm going to say later, I think we're at a similar point where the economic consensus has broken down, and why I hope we could be part of um, forming a new one. Um, and the other thing I would stress is I'm going to tell you a story around protectionism. I'm going to tell you a story around social welfare. And then I'm going to tell you a story around the green economy. But just remember, in this truncated version, within each of these um, battle of ideas, there were other ideas that didn't that um, maybe were not good ideas, and there's certainly been periods in history in which they had, there had been a lot of not very good ideas. But the ones that ultimately gained consensus has changed our society for the better, which is why I want to take you first To the Great Depression of the 19th century, and I'm going to take you to the Great Reset, which I hope to see in the 21st century. So, how many of you remember the repeal of the Corn Laws in 1846? There's got to be some people, (laughs) personally. So, (laughs) that makes us telling the story so easier. (laughs) So, um, the Corn Laws uh, were a protection piece of legislation which imposed 100% tariffs on imports of all grains. And it was repealed in 1846 because a new economic consensus led by uh, the great economist David Ricardo, known as the father of international trade, shifted the paradigm of the day away from mercantilism, which is this idea that countries should run trade surpluses, uh, period. (laughs) Now, you're probably thinking, isn't that what we talk about today? Yeah, ideas never die. They just, there's a pendulum that swings. So, uh, by the way, David Ricardo... um, who formulated the idea of comparative advantage? Um, he never actually lived to see his uh, great idea pass into uh, legislation because he actually passed away before then. That's my other lesson from history: you will make an impact eventually; you may just not live to see it. <laughs> um, so, but he, um, what he did, and this was a complete shift and a moving away from the landed. Uh, landowners who were very vested in a protections piece of legislation. So David Ricardo ended up buying himself a seat, he became an MP, and originally he was unsuccessful in convincing the then Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel to repeal the Corn Laws. But in his second term Sir Robert Peel actually became convinced and then led um, the move uh, to repeal the Corn Laws. Uh, heralding in a period of commercial globalization so the uh, England was the first industrialized nation. Actually, became the first industrialized trading nation. So the globalization that you see today can be dated, in some respects, back to this this act. Oh, and by the way, after Sir Robert Peel did that, he got kicked out of office, and then his party went out into the cold for a generation. But aside from that, it was a great outcome <laughs> because the economists were influential in reshaping thinking. And actually, I think and Ricardo was heavily criticized for his theories that supported this. Remember, there's no counterfactual here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, there's no natural experiment. He essentially used theory to argue for the benefits of trade based on comparative advantage. His critics labeled it Ricardian vice, making simplistic assumptions on a model to get to an outcome that you want. Despite all of that, he persevered. But the economic consensus then broke down. So the latter part of the 19th century um, generated um, what became known as the long depression or the great depression of the 19th century when unemployment appeared for the first time in the dictionary. So a US financial crisis spread across the Atlantic. This globalization that linked markets transmitted a financial crisis as well. And therefore, there was again a breakdown in consensus. And as you know, the early 20th century was characterized by a period of protectionism, most notably by the Smoot-Hawley terror fact of the 1930s. So the rebuilding then begins again. So the early part of the 19th century also saw the rise of socialism and communism. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for L S E IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. At one point, the world was evenly balanced between those who lived in capitalist societies and those who lived in communist or partly socialist societies. So, what was the outcome very quickly here? Was the welfare state. So economists like um, Alfred Marshall saw that the evidence around giving people pensions did not disincentivize work, empirically started to argue for or an acceptance of a social safety net and that's what changed the uh, capitalist system of the 19th century and the 18th century into one where there was a social safety net which came into fruition really in the early in the mid part of the 20th um, century and that helped win the battle of ideas um, which of course takes us through the 19th um, really, not until I would say uh, perhaps the fall of the Berlin Wall, as we heard about the breakup of the Soviet Union, where it seemed to be there was a new consensus around welfare state capitalism, um, and uh, you know, and uh, in accepting a model which was not uh, the Soviet model of communism, but that consensus quickly broke down again. By the end of the 1990s, only within a decade, there were fierce protests um, against globalization, for instance, at the World Trade Organization in Seattle in 1999, and we're now again at a period in which um, the consensus has broken down. Um, We live in the United States in the Second Gilded Age um, where inequality by some metrics is higher than it was in the late part of the 19th century that I just described. Um, which of course you might recall from novels by Scott Fitzgerald and others. Um, And there is a hankering for a more equal um, and a fairer, as well as a greener society. And I think that brings me to the present point. So the Great Reset has been mentioned by various organisations and I think it's because we've had a stoppage in the way we work and live over the past few years. So if I asked you, you know, how many of you use Zoom in 2019, you show your hands if you... Okay, so there's a few, right? But Zoom IPO'd in 2019. Um, the technology was there, but it wasn't used. So now you do have virtual meetings. It can improve your work-life balance for those who can do hybrid working. So that's part of just an example of a reset. Can we reset further and make ourselves... We've seen through the pandemic how government support can support those who are least well off. Can we um, focus attention on greening the economy as our big challenge today? So it was unacceptable to have people who are starving as no social welfare support in the early part of the 20th century, and today is the destruction of the planet. So I'm hopeful that we could see um, a new economic consensus at this turning point, um, which allows us to become... uh, all those things and, and reset ourselves. By the way, the reason I use the Zoom example is because um, it also raises productivity um, if you incorporate technology in the way you work. Um, there's a big research program here at the LSC and is hugely important and could figure into the Economy 2030 uh, project in terms of trying to raise investment. So there's an ulterior motive in me raising that, not just because um, I like Zoom. Anyways, let me pause there. <laughs> Thank you.
1: Okay, great. Thanks. Okay, so um, now I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, the plan now is I'm going to ask the, uh, the panelists a few challenging questions uh, about what economists do, or indeed what economists don't uh, do. Um, now the problem with that is I've got a bunch of questions that I thought were very creative questions, but I, I, that I've set up. Trouble is, I've answered several <laughs> of them so far. Uh, you know, if you ask what the number one priority of economists might be, it's sort of been sort of been answered in part. Uh, if you think economists can usefully contribute to evidence-based policy, uh, in, in, particularly in a cost-effective manner, I think we've already heard some of that. So I'm going to skip those, but I'm still going to try and ask a couple of questions before we go to the uh, questions from the floor and, and on Zoom. Um, so let's, let's start with a direct one, uh, and of course there are many many possible answers to this, I think, and it'd be quite interesting if the audience follows up, perhaps on this one. So what happens if you ignore the economists? Um, who'd, who'd, who'd like to start? Uh, let's let's go for Zanny because Zanny's uh, smiling a little bit.
3: <laughs> uh, well, I think the economists are actually being ignored much more than they were um, in certain areas now. I think the main, uh, as I, I guess as I mentioned earlier, I think um, economists bring a toolkit and a framework um, for how to think, and you had the Lionel Robbins definition, mm. but it is about you know, allocating scarce resources, thinking about incentives. Um, there, you can have economists pushing for very different ends, but, but the basic toolkit is a useful toolkit. And I think if you don't have economists in the room, then you can have an absence of rigor in your thinking, and you can have a, an ability not to face up to trade-offs. And that's actually the, the thing that I have noticed most in this, in this big shift that I really do think is there towards geopolitical primacy um, rather than globalization. We've gone from a world where everyone thinks about globalization to a world where everyone is thinking about national security and geopolitics, which is laudable goals. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I think in that world where indus- everyone's into industrial policy now, every government wants to have you know, its own strategic autonomy on this, that, and the other... They aren't forced to think about policymakers aren't forced to think about trade-offs without economists in the room. It's much easier to get away with thinking there aren't trade-offs. So I would say that's it's not the only thing that you lose, but I think you lose that rigor.
0: I mean, w- one good example in the UK is what we called cakeism, right? Have your cake and eat it too. You can cut off your ties with your biggest trading partner and still have growth and productivity and competitiveness. No trade-off there. Well, if you, you know, any serious economist would have said those are you know, irreconcilable goals. I I think the other thing, just to add to what Sandy said, was um, just everything's a bit more inefficient (laughs) if you don't have economists in the room. And so you kind of tolerate a higher level of inefficiency um, because that is something that economists focus on. I think, just to self-criticize a bit, I think economists sometimes do worship a little too much at the altar of efficiency. Uh, and there are some places where we have to tolerate some inefficiency for other purposes. you know many people would argue that there are many aspects of say the way government operates that are inefficient, but we we insist on that because we want our democracies to be fair and that certain things have to be regulated in a certain way or processed in a certain way, and we know that it's inefficient, but we we want it to be fair, and in those situations, fairness trumps efficiency. But the thing that an economist would do is make that trade-off explicit, and so that you know, I'm giving up this much efficiency because I'm getting this much fairness, and you can make and a, and a politician can make that choice, but unless you've got economists in the room, you don't quite know how much inefficiency you're tolerating in order to get.
2: A certain amount of fairness. Richard Linton? Yeah. Um I'm going to start criticising economists after this intervention, I promise. But, um, so Paul Samuelson was asked by a mathematician whose name I've forgotten and I think has, has been largely forgotten, which tells you something uh, about it, to say something that's both true and non-trivial about economics and about the social sciences. And that's, I guess, the kind of core of this question It's like, we're all involved in the economy, we're all involved in markets, don't we just kind of know this stuff by common sense? And the answer to that question is no. Um, common sense would tell you that saving is great, let's all just save as much as possible. But there's a thing called the paradox of thrift, which is because one person's spending is another person's income. Um, similarly, if you think about why does a country save, your intuition might be that a rich country would save. An economist can explain to you, no, it's a young country that will, that, that will save, and that's because of Franco Modigliani. And similarly, Samuelson's answer, and I'll leave this uh, to Linda, Um, was actually Ricardian equivalence. The the theory of trade, which explains why even if one country, and he talked about Portugal and England, even if one country is better at doing absolutely everything than the other, there will still be gains from trade. All of these things are completely non-obvious. They are not common sense, and you will miss those if you kick economists out of the room.
4: So picking up on that, Samuelson spent several years thinking about the answer, and he finally came up with comparative advantage. And... He said, comparative advantage is an economic truth that is not obvious to intelligent people. So Richard's point is very well made. Um, In fact, Adam Smith wrote about absolute advantage. He thought you ought to trade on the basis of what you are most efficient at. Ricardo actually argued you trade on the basis of what you are least worst at. Believe me, my copy editor did not like this part of the book. (laughs) Is there a more elegant way of saying it? No. (laughs) Um, So what do we miss if the economists were not in the room? Well, there's an old joke that US President Harry Truman gives, which is, just give me a one-handed economist. They're constantly saying, on the one hand, on the other hand. (laughs) So jokes aside, (laughs) um, I think what you would miss is actually that. So economics is a social science. And you can make your arguments I describe the battle of ideas based on logic, based on evidence, based on empiricism. But there are no absolutes um, in terms of the outcome. And so quite a lot of what you would miss is a lack of certainty, which is a plus So um, I'll give the example of President Obama, who has written a great first part of his memoir. He said um, when he was told, go get Osama bin Laden, um, he asked, OK, so what's the probability he's there? And the answer was 50-50. And he goes, well, that's like a flip of a coin. But that's not a bad way to do policy, is to be uncertain, is to pilot things, is to recognize the trade-offs, the importance of, you know, actually making things implementable, uh, the impact on people through distribution, I think it's okay not to be sure, but I think it's equally important to be in the room so you can present the best analysis, the best evidence that you know, and try and influence um, the outcome. And I do think, we are talking about in the green room before, economics gives you an incredible set of tools. And, um, and I think our challenge today is to use those tools and not forget some of the philosophical roots of economics. You know, Adam Smith and these early economists were philosophers. Um, and you know, going to the point that Manoush made, you know, they f- they focused on utility, on distribution. The early debates were around utilitarianism. And so I think you know, use the tools, but recognize it's a social science rooted in lots of things. And hopefully, that means we'll get invite it back into the room at some point. <laughs> okay.
1: Great, I'm going to ask one more before we go to the Q&A session. Okay, so, so the, um, the theme of the LSE Festival as I mentioned earlier, is um, people and change. So let's, let, let, maybe this gives Richard his chance. Let's, so let's think about economists and, and what, what, what would you most like to see economists change? That? It may, maybe economists change their behaviour or maybe economics going in another direction. What would you like to see most about that, and perhaps affecting people through that change. And we'll, we'll, we'll give Richard the first go, given he said, what he said
5: before.
2: Um, I think economics is... <clears throat> excuse me. It's, a, it's like a three-legged stool with two legs. Um, if you go back to... Um, every economist will be taught the difference between so-called normative and positive economics, normative positive economics being the way the world is, normative economics being the way the world should be, um, and this is the way we do things. We look at the way things work, we look at policy ideas. Um, If you actually go back to the original source, I commend reading original sources to everyone, it's by Keynes, not the Keynes you may have heard of, Keynes' father, Neville. Um, And there's a third type of economics. He talks about positive economics, normative economics, and then practical He talks about the art of economics, and that is about economic policymaking. And so the examples that I gave you, the sugar tax, the auction, um, inflation targeting and so on, I'm afraid are way too few and far between. As has mentioned, we know that we can deal with um, climate change, a good deal of it through a carbon tax, but you need a really detailed knowledge of how to get that through political uh, legislatures what the pros and cons are. And so, I guess another way of putting it is, if you think about R&D, which companies do, they do the basic research, then they develop the product. Economists do way too much research and not enough development. They need to be bolder, they need to be more vocal, they need to be much more involved in policy uh, than many of them are. Some exceptions, of course, Um, but, but that would be my number one thing. So, it's a practical science... I most kind of get angry with and dislike economists who talk about things like a, a beautiful model or a nice solution <laughs> or whatever. This is not poetry. This is not art. This is a practical thing. And if you're not doing practical, practical things with it, I don't really see that there's that much point. Um, is any?
3: um I'll follow on from that. So uh, I think the corollary of the hubris... That the economics discipline, I think, has had in the past few decades is that it's become siloed and it's become um, insufficiently cognizant of the things that economics can learn from other disciplines. And the one that I would point to, and this is something that you will all have heard, is history. I mean, I do think that the kind of formalization of economics and the specialization, has lost something that you get from a broader, traditional political economy, and it's interesting. You know, the the Economist, as you know, was founded to champion for the corner, for the abolition of the Corn Laws that you wrote about. But when we when when the Economist magazine was founded, the word economist was quite a new word. I mean, people didn't consider themselves economists in those days, and what they really had were were political economists. They combined economic thinking Mm -hmm. and political economy. And I would throw into that a healthy dollop of history. And I think if you want to use economics most effectively now, you need the toolkit, don't get me wrong, I, I think the toolkit is really important, but a healthy sense of how, and you learn this I think from history, how institutions, how cultural conditions have in the past shaped economic outcomes brings a huge amount that equations, however sophisticated, can't do. And I think that's the bit that I would want more of in the discipline.
4: If I just pick up on that, so Walter Baghold, um, your first editor. Exactly. Second. Second editor. Esteemed. (laughs) Um, Indeed. Um, And, oh, I can't resist this joke, what Richard uh, just said. Um, So (laughs) an economist looks at something that works in uh, practice and goes, but does it work in theory? There is a space for theory, there's a space for empirical analysis, and I use those terms spaces specifically because it is actually about um, having a a wider uh, set, even within economics, of being less focused on your own subject, which has become, um, you know, it, it would help. So I suppose the one thing I would like to see changed is the great economists that I've written about all tackled the big questions of the day, even if the answers were messy. So there is a tendency to want well, that joke I just made about wanting things to be very tidy. Um, and maybe it's messy. Maybe you're not too sure, but is it worth tackling? So I'll give you the example. Um, of of uh, Joseph Schumpeter, who you all would know as the father of creative destruction, this theory that he rejected macro explanations of business cycles and said, you're just missing the point. I've studied the Mitchell stand, I've studied the US trust. And actually, it's all about firms that innovate, and that process of creative destruction is what generates cycles in economics. Um, But his best-known book was his 1942 book called Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy because he was engaged in the battle of ideas against the rise of Marxism. um, And he felt that that was where he could couch his arguments around capitalism being an engine that needed to be retooled. Otherwise, it could stall within why we should be supporting a revised capitalist system. And it's not as neat as his theories and studies of the Mitchell stand in Germany or of creative destruction. But he waded in, and ultimately, um, you know, we know the outcome. And so, that to me is what I would like to see. And we do begin to see in the subject big uh, picture encounters. And if this helps, uh, it was actually a bestseller. He ended up publishing several editions of it, so he probably made a bit of money, which academics don't generally get.
1: To.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think,
0: um, I guess not, I, I agree with a lot of what's been said. I mean, I spent about 20 years in the policy world and saw up close how you're usually, you're not in a first best world, definitely. You're not even in a second best world. You're usually in like a third or fourth best world. And you're trying to figure out, this politician wants to achieve this. How can I structure policy to get as close to what is efficient but achieves their objectives? And that kind of messy practical world is... um, is the reality, and and the fact that economists haven't done that very well is why we've been kind of kicked out of the room. Um, and and I think one of our failings as a discipline is that we have neglected distribution too much. And part of you know part of the reasons economists lost credibility, particularly after the financial crisis, is the politicians felt like, You know, you said the system would work and globalization and capital flows, and it would be you know we don't. And we just kind of completely neglected the distributional consequences of hyperglobalization. And I believe in trade and comparative advantage and globalization, but you do need to deal with the adverse consequences on local communities. And we and we just didn't do enough to argue that. You know, and, and I, I, I see the same thing in central banking. You know, we knew that quantitative easing would result in huge gains to asset owners and that that would have distributional consequences. We knew that going in. I mean, we were trying to avoid a Great Depression so it made sense to do QE and I support that we did QE. But something should have been done as a counterpoint to the distributional consequences of QE. Not by the monetary authorities but by the fiscal authorities. So those are just two examples where by not paying attention to who wins and who loses we lost political support and the ear of politicians because of the kinds of policies that we advocate.
1: Okay, okay great. Let's, let's go straight into the Q&A now because we're sort of um, running out of time. Uh, uh, so let's take, um, if we can take two or three uh, questions together from the floor and then each of the panellists can... I may allocate, can just, uh, I may allocate a rule um, to, to it um, uh, and then we'll go to a second set from, from Zoom which I think there are some, Martin, yeah, okay um, so let's take uh, this one here that was a very rapid So that was a roving microphone but I think is coming
6: around um, Good evening, thank you very much for a very interesting discussion, I think what combines all of your points here is that sort of the, po- the, the focus on the global challenges that the modern community faces. Now the issue is that to solve those challenges it seems like it is necessary to go beyond simple economic assumption of profit maximization or income maximization. It requires some sort of ideological stance. In a simple way, to agree to to fight to fight climate change, we should climate change. We should all first agree that there is climate change or that it is dangerous. And that applies to obviously geopolitics too. To stop trading with Russia for its gas, we need to all agree that there is something wrong with Russia. There is something wrong with Putin. Now the problem is that all of those claims. They seem to be very ideological and sort of prejudice-based. Now, my question is, to what degree do you think economists should sort of state those, you know, clear ideological stances and impact them in a way that economists should be similar to medical scientists during COVID? Uh, medical scientists during COVID said that, yes, we should fight COVID with those measures. Should economists be a little bit more harsh with their advice to politicians?
5: Thank you. red
1: shirts at the back you
5: got any more hands? Thank you so much for a very interesting and uh, insightful discussion. I wanted to ask a question about the bridge between economic theory and practice. So historically, when you think about uh, co- communism, so in book the theory is great, in practice it is horrible, with, with, with huge human loss and consequences for the countries. Washington consensus or structural adjustment programs, okay, so again, in theory, the theory is good, the practice in many African countries is uh, questionable. Then we have the shock therapy that Poland and Russia went through. So in in theory that should have kind of ushered in the capitalist, the capitalist system and help Russia to overcome, but in reality, it led to hyperinflation, the loss of trust in the market economy and other factors. So how do you, I mean, how do the economies kind of bridge the gap between a wonderful theory that is empirically tested, that is a that is appealing and that is trying to kind of remedy the deficiencies of something that is existent with the reality that often not often, but uh, sometimes goes terribly wrong in, in, in the wrong direction. Thank you. Someone here?:
2: Thank you so much. Um, yeah, my question is kind of building off of the first one, but I'm wondering how you see
0: economics um, reconciling for the fact that there may not be a best world, and that what is a best world might look very different depending on who you are and what where you are in the world?
1: Okay, great. So, we've so we got three. We've got beyond profit maximization, we've got how do we bridge the gap between beautiful analytical models and the reality of the world, the harsh reality of the world. And we've got some second best, or lack of first best, who, who would like to take beyond profit maximization?
4: Should I take the Linda. ideological? Um, so The battle of ideas is indeed that. Um, So some of the most fierce battles in history were actually uh, very different approaches based on ideology. So we're here at the LSE, uh, Friedrich Kayak, that Manoush mentioned. He was actually brought in by Lionel Robbins, then a very young head of department here at the Economics Department, so that the LSE could compete against Keynesianism, which was sweeping through the subject, mm-hmm. and the rise of the Cambridge School of Economics. I would, also, I would just say, though, Keynes had this advantage because he was known for his pithy turn of phrase, like, you know, uh, a speculator is one who runs risks of which he is aware, and an investor is one who runs risks of which he is unaware. <laughs> And Hayek, reportedly, um, his students asked him to lecture in German. He's Austrian because it would be more understandable than <laughs> his English. <laughs> um, however, the reason I'm raising this is that we've heard that Hayek was the inspiration behind Thatcherism and Reagan, uh, the Reagan revolutions in the 1980s. And I've mentioned you know, Keynesianism, indeed, and plays the role for the state. But the battle was ideological and clear and based on the ideas. It was never ad hominem. So after his passing, after Keynes died, um, Hayek told his widow, the Russian ballerina, that Keynes was the greatest man he had ever known. And so I think if we can get to a point where you're clear where you stand, this is the idea, battle the idea fiercely, but it's not ad hominem, it's not personal. I think that's how you can. You should have fierce battles, um, but on the merits, on the arguments, on the theory, on the evidence. Of course, I realise all
1: three of these questions are about questioning the optimization model that yes. economists.
0: Yes, I mean, I just, I think the, on the question about, you know, what, if there is no ideal, what are you working toward? I, you know, I think, I think about it, Bad economics usually comes from bad politics, uh, and the politics is what sets the ideal. What are you trying? What are you trying to achieve? And. If you had really bad politics, like we have in many countries these days, you end up getting really bad economics because the objective function that they have set is often not a desirable one. So I think those two things are very interconnected. And I just wanted to also ask the question about the theory versus practice. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that one area where we've had a significant improvement in that area is... If you look at the rise of randomized control trials in economics and in uh, you know it's mainly in microeconomics, it's very hard to do randomized control trials in macro, uh, although occasionally we get a natural experiment which helps us. but but that has actually enabled us to bridge theory and practice in a way that we could never do that before. So now you can say in theory, we think that, Prices work this way in the markets, or this—you know—if we provide this incentive in the labor markets, people will behave this way. Then you can actually run an experiment and test your theory. And I think that's been a big change in economics as a discipline in some in some areas.
1: Great. Now, can we get two questions from from the Zoom, Martin? Of which for Richard and Zannie, I think. I, 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 I should have asked people to I've, say... I've
2: who got, got a prop I've got to get actually.
0: I'm sorry, it's worth it. He's getting a prop apparently. He's getting a prop. So oh,
2: okay. maybe yeah, we on, get okay. the Oops. questions while huh? he gets. I knew, I knew, nothing. I, I knew <laughs> nothing. That was
0: dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> I that
1: before. Okay, Martin. can, okay. can we have our two questions first? Got it. I need it. Okay, okay.
6: Okay, Good questions from online. We've got uh, John stern He asks. Well, he says from Adam Smith to Keynes and onwards, economics has been intimately linked with liberal political ideas. How will economics be persuasive when political liberalism is under so much pressure? And uh, Ali, a master's student in London, asks, "Who else needs to be in the room with economists to ensure fair and equitable policy in spots that economics lacks?"
1: Okay,
3: Zali, would you like the the second one, the first one, Uh, or the first one? You can choose. (laughs) I can choose. Excellent. Um, uh, So I think so. It's a really interesting question. If Economics is associated with political liberalism. How will economics fare if political liberalism is under pressure? I think it, it in some sense it builds on much of our conversation because I think that in, a world, in the world we're in right now, econom- economists have to varying degrees been kicked out of the room while other concerns, ideological concerns, national security concerns are taking greater primacy. Identity. Um, identity concerns, cultural concerns... Um, If we have a real shift away from political liberalism to a more authoritarian model, to a less democratic model, um, I think you have the risk of more extreme economic outcomes. It's perfectly possible to have market economics with authoritarianism, but it's quite possible that you have the opposite. so I, I would not want to be thought of as thinking about political systems purely in terms of the function of the economic policy they come out of. I believe in liberalism. I'm you know, a paid-up liberal, small-l liberal. Uh, that's what I spent my career championing. It's what the newspaper that I run champions. I fundamentally believe in it for reasons that I'll go well beyond economic outcomes, for reasons of uh, personal autonomy, for reasons of freedom, for reasons that are a very fundamental set of things that I think apply to the dignity of the individual. But it is true that it is more likely, I think, to yield better economic outcomes. And I think it is, you know, history of the the very, um, in part, awful history of the 20th century suggests that uh, liberal political systems are likely to lead to better economic outcomes. Um, can I just have a quick word on the gap between the theory and the practice, which yeah, was in the previous? Because this, this links to this. Because I, it is true that there are um, you know, examples of Washington consensus policies going horribly wrong. But I think I would push back at the idea that there is a parallel between the gap between theory and practice in communism and the gap between theory and practice in the Washington consensus. I think one is history shows set up to fail and the other one actually there are examples of successes and i would you you mentioned the question and mentioned in one breath russia and poland and i would actually say that there is a big difference there and that post-communist economic reforms i think have been fantastically successful in poland they've been much much less successful in russia and the reason that is because i think one one word really which is institutions And what really differentiates whether incentives work, whether markets work, whether price signals work, is the institutional setting that they are in. And I mean institutionals very broadly. The reason IMF programs fail in many failing countries in Africa is because the institutions are not there and because the institutions don't function. So so you can't substitute for those institutions, but I think I'm fairly clear which of the underlying... Economic models I would put my money on um, between those two. So I think the gap between theory and reality exists everywhere, but it is most easy to narrow with free market economics. Okay, Richard, so uh, who, who,
1: uh, else, who uh, else should uh, be in the room? Uh, and you, you can actually uh, rule some economists out if you want. You can say some. some just I to want to you know what this. What the prop I, I, is I will for... answer
2: that, but I have to like... use this prop, say so I obviously second everything Zani uh, <laughs> said on, on liberalism. Like, you know, I learned much that I know about economics and, and certainly about writing from, from working with Zanny, who was my boss. Um, now, Zanny, have you ever come across one of these things?
3: OK, so I'm the butt of this. Uh, yes, it's a paperweight, is it? Yeah,
2: so if you have young kids, you come across, I, I'm going to get to your question over there, I promise. You come across <laughs> a lot of these things at kids' parties. They're used to weigh down helium balloons, OK? I saw about four of them at the weekend. You get hold of it, you think it's a very ugly thing open it up, and what you have got is a piece of concrete or cement. So that is a single-use plastic, and that is single-use concrete that has been shipped to the UK from China. Now, I'm... A massive free trader. But you have to tell me a very, very convoluted story about comparative advantage for this to make sense, I think, in in an environmental sense. It doesn't. It's there because the system is so distorted that we end up with things like that. You know, just tie the balloon to something. You don't need to import a piece of concrete. You're going to throw in the bin. Imagine the, the environmental consequences of that. And so the answer to your question is, with respect, don't pose it as a binary, that if you don't meet up with theory, like you, you, you have to give up, because it's a spectrum. And a, there is a first-best answer out there. Um, I agree that, that a liberal system will take you closest to it, but we're so far from it on so many me- measures that just incremental benefits that we can achieve, as we've seen with minimum wages, for example, are worth pursuing. We're, we're so far from the goals we need to get to that there are loads and loads of benefits we can get from better economic policy.
1: Great. I'm, I'm afraid we've gone beyond time. I'm sure we could, could have carried on for absolutely ages. Um, <laughs> probably far too long. <laughs> anyway, um, so I've taken my glasses off. So thanks so much to the speakers uh, for a v- fascinating talk and discussion. As I say, it, it could have gone for ages. And I hope everybody enjoyed it. Uh, just to advertise a bit, there's a lot more exciting events coming up at the festival this week. Many of, many of which will touch upon the themes that we've spoken about here, Here, I think, or I do hope they will. Um, so take a copy of the programme on your way out, and you can check the, check the programme uh, at, on, online as well. Uh, and an additional thing, you know, we, you know we, are, we, are, we are all the economists on here, and so Linda's book has come out very really recently, and so there are copies of Linda's book for sale, and maybe for signing outside, uh, outside of the theatre afterwards. Um, so, uh, so there's also a complimentary drink uh, for, for everybody in the reception afternoon. But please, um, please join me in, uh,
0: in thanking us oh. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.